Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 253, Philanthropic Inclusion. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And before we jump into our interview today, we just first of all want to say that we hope you had a happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah is over. Actually, today is the last day of Hanukkah. Probably in a lot of people's minds, the last day of Hanukkah was yesterday because that was when we lit the eighth candle. But technically, today is still Hanukkah. So happy Hanukkah. We had a great time having eight different gatherings over Hanukkah for our Geltraiser event. It was a lot of fun. We're really grateful to all the people who participated with us as well as to all the guests who came along with us. Just because Hanukkah is over and just because the Geltraiser events are over doesn't necessarily mean that the Geltraiser has to be over. And there's two weeks left in the calendar year. A lot of people like to do their giving at the year end. And if you haven't had a chance yet to make a donation to Judaism Unbound, we would be extremely grateful if you would do that. Whatever you're able to give is super helpful and wonderful, and we're so appreciative. And the way that you do that is you go to www.judaismunbound.com donate. The second thing that I wanted to say is that I mentioned in the past that we're experimenting with these workshops trying to help people develop a process to reimagine Jewish holidays. And this year, we are going to continue to do that. We have plans to do workshops like that for Shabbat, for Purim, for Passover, and beyond. But before all that, we are doing a workshop that we are calling Reaffirming America. And the idea is to develop a new American holiday or maybe a new Jewish holiday for American Jews, whatever you want to try to experiment with, that is going to take place around January 20th. That's Inauguration Day. It can be other days around there. It could be a completely different day. And this is just an interesting time to experiment with this. But the idea is to create a new holiday that celebrates, affirms, reaffirms, rededicates ourselves to American democracy. You can pay any amount that you want. All the profits from this workshop are going to be donated to nonpartisan organizations that are working to support and reaffirm and reestablish and thicken up American democracy and democracy around the world. Check out, this is actually on the Jewish Live website, so check out www.jewishlive.org America, and you can find all the details there. The last announcement that I want to make is something that we're really excited about, which is that the first new podcast stemming out of Jewish Live has just been released. It's a podcast that the Jewish Education Project created on Jewish Live, and they've converted that live streaming video show into an audio-only podcast. So now it's available on all the podcast apps. So the podcast is called Adapting the Future of Jewish Education, and you can find it on any podcast app. So now shifting to the topic of today's interview. We have been exploring the topic of Jewish philanthropy, what Jewish philanthropy really means and how it's being executed by a variety of kinds of philanthropists. And today we are talking with Jay and Shira Ruderman from the Ruderman Family Foundation. The Ruderman Family Foundation is a leader in inclusion and disability rights advocacy, both in the United States and Israel. It's a private family foundation whose mission statement reads as follows. 
foundation believes that inclusion and understanding of all people is essential to a fair and flourishing community. Guided by our Jewish values, we advocate for and advance the inclusion of people with disabilities throughout our society, strengthen the relationship between Israel and the American Jewish community, and model the practice of strategic philanthropy worldwide. We operate as a nonpartisan strategic catalyst in cooperation with government, private sectors, civil society, and philanthropies. Today, the foundation is built around the idea that disability rights are civil rights. Now let me introduce our guests, Jay Ruderman and Shira Ruderman. Jay Ruderman is president of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Prior to joining the foundation, he was an assistant district attorney, served as liaison between the Israel Defense Forces and Diaspora Jewry, and was leadership director for APAC in Israel. He currently serves on the board of directors of the National Organization on Disability and the University of Haifa, and he previously served on the board of directors of the Jewish Funders Network and the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. Shira Ruderman is the executive director of the Ruderman Family Foundation. She also serves as a board member of various organizations and associations in Israel and the United States, and is currently serving as chairwoman of the Fulbright Foundation. She represents the new Israeli approach to philanthropy, which believes in strategic giving, involvement, and social entrepreneurship. Shira and Jay Ruderman were named on the list of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post in 2016. And in 2014, Shira Ruderman was named as one of the 100 most influential women in Israel by the Nashim Journal. We should also mention that Jay Ruderman hosts a podcast of his own. It's a podcast focused on inclusion, innovation, and social justice, where he interviews leaders and experts on the latest news, technology, and advocacy for social justice. The podcast is called All Inclusive with Jay Ruderman, and it's available on all the podcast apps. So Jay Ruderman, Shira Ruderman, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having us. Well, we're really interested in getting inside of this world of foundations and how foundations think. And I know that many foundation people say, if you've gotten to know one foundation, then you've gotten to know one foundation. So that's absolutely fine. And we're really interested in how this foundation works. I thought we could start by a little bit to the extent that you could tell the story of how a foundation like yours comes to be and how it chooses its area of focus. Like, what is the story of the Ruderman Foundation in, in terms of its early days and, and getting the focus that you have now? So a foundation, I think it's a legacy tool for a family that is very committed to give, to have a platform and a tool to do it regularly and not just sporadically, which is very different than when you choose an area and how you work. You know, the first step is to decide that you want to take a chunk of your money and dedicate it to the goods of the public. Uh, and you basically do not have lifetime um, control on it because once you set a foundation, you cannot take the money back. And I think that most people don't understand this big commitment. So this is step one, which is based on perception, mindset, values, um, which Later on, once you make this decision, you decide what I want to invest in, how I want to work. Do I want to have my own programs or just support others? But I think this is step two. So our beginning was with Jay's parents. 
with uh, my father-in-law, Mort Rudiman and Marsha Rudiman. Uh, and at that time, when they decided to have a foundation, it was a truly checkbook foundation, which is very classic to their generation. Uh, you know, you meet a great person, you like what they say and what they do, and you just give them. And I think about 20 years ago, they um, decided that it was a good opportunity maybe to take it one step forward. And Jay and I got married and they said, you do it for others. You know, you work as a manager, come and work for us. But I think it was more of a test than a, a you know, a wish to have a professional foundation. It's like, oh, let's see you doing it. And then we'll decide uh, if you prove yourself. And I think we took the challenge very seriously. And we said, okay, don't, you know, don't think we'll not uh, uh, live up to your expectation. And I think that if I jump 20 years after to the Ruderman Family Foundation today, uh, it was beyond and exceed every thought that what he had in mind and definitely what we had in mind. So I think my recollection is um, going back to 2001 when my dad approached me and and my background has always been in political life and public policy and he said I want you to take over running the philanthropy and and I basically turned him down I said you know I I, I see philanthropy is really sort of boring um and I'm more interested in politics because I think that's where real change is being made but I think that Shira as a manager would be great at setting it up and becoming you know a more professional organization you know, I think what happened in time is I, I I came to the realization after talking to many, many people that a foundation could become and take on the, the flavor and direction that you want it to. And so why did I step in in 2008? Well, my dad was in poor health. He passed away in 2011. So, you know, we did have three years of working together. And... um our first major philanthropic investment was in the Jewish day schools in the Boston area. And that was on disability inclusion. Sheer and I were living in Israel. We, we, we met, we got married. And so I was running the foundation when I took it over in 2008 from Israel. And I decided to marry like what we were doing in Israel to what we were doing here and go narrow and deep on the issue of disability rights and disability inclusion in the Jewish world. Not disability from a segregationist point of view, which was already popular in the Jewish world, but more of an inclusion disability rights point of view. And then the other issue that we added since, and we've been very involved on in is um, educating Israeli leadership on the American Jewish community. We were looking for a vacuum where we could have outsized leadership. So first on the disability rights issue in the Jewish community, we were one of the only organizations to really plant the flag there very strongly. Um, and also on educating Israelis about the American Jewish community, we were the only organization at the time doing that. So, I mean, I think that that I took philanthropy, which I initially thought is very staid and, and, and sort of giving money to let others do the work, to really changing it to be a more activist uh, foundation. I want to start by asking you a little bit more about that choice of the disability inclusion work. 
was there a story behind how you decided to prioritize that topic? Philanthropy is a privilege. And if you have this in mind, that philanthropy is based on values and based on doing good and being committed uh, to maximize your responsibility, I think then you decide to ask yourself, how can I do something really impactful and meaningful? And one of the decisions that we made is to do what others don't do to be innovative as much as we can and take risks. 18 years ago, when we started to look into major commitments, um, we were recruited to be partners in Jewish education, first time uh, large giving as a community, three funders came together and the idea was to make Jewish education excellent education as any good private schools that we know. And when we dived into excellency as this partnership called by the name Jewish uh, Peerless Excellence, we understood that excellency in the Jewish day schools looks very specific. You have to be good already to start with, a good student, uh, not to challenge the system too much. You fit the metrics or the box. And this is not excellency. Excellency means that we can take you and make you the best you can because of who you are and your abilities. And once we figured it out, we made the decision that we want to change how excellency in the Jewish world looks like. This led us to disability. My father-in-law motto, it's like everyone deserves an opportunity. And when we understood that in the Jewish community day school, truly not everyone has an opportunity we said, okay, this has to change. How are we creating opportunities for those that are not part of our Jewish day schools? And the third thing that led to us, you know, investing more in disability and make us our flagship is that two years after we decided to invest in inclusion and disability and created, we created a nonprofit by the name Gateways in Massachusetts and in Boston in partnership with the Federation. Um, one of the grandchildren was uh, diagnosed with autism. And I think it gave us the emotional stamp uh, that we needed to have in order to make it our lifetime commitment. I think it's a combination of our commitment to social justice, our commitment to Jewish values, and our commitment to our family needs to make it a priority, but bring it to those that can uh, be part of it, disability inclusion became for us like a flagship of a commitment and an issue and a topic from our Jewish community to the local community, to the state of Israel. And then we took it beyond the Jewish community in the United States. I don't want to point to you as like lead representative of all Jewish philanthropy, because that would be a silly thing to do to anybody. But I think that there's a real question over like, what even is Jewish philanthropy? And I mean that in a couple of ways. So in one sense, I mean, um, I could imagine different answers to what is Jewish philanthropy. Some of those answers or some of those understandings would very logically lead to a conclusion of, ah, yes, doing disability inclusion work totally fits the definition of Jewish philanthropy. I could also imagine somebody else with a different understanding of Jewish philanthropy saying, Disability inclusion, like I don't 
I don't see it. Like, help me out. Why, why is that a, sort of a specifically Jewish thing? And I think that those different approaches are actually really important to think about. Um, how would you approach the question, what is Jewish philanthropy, with the understanding that you're not answering necessarily for everyone? But how would you approach it? And, and through that lens, why does it lead you to this issue of disability inclusion that might, for some people, seem sort of not particularly Jewish, but maybe still Jewish? If you are Jewish or identify with Jewish and you're engaged in philanthropy, I think you can define whatever you do as Jewish philanthropy. I would say for us, why inclusion? Why is that important? Well, in any society in the world, including in Israel, including the American Jewish community, 20% of any population is going to have some form of a disability. And historically, those populations were segregated. Separate schools for people, separate housing, uh, separate workforce, if there was a workforce, exclusion from religious life. When the Americans with Disabilities Act which is the landmark legislation for people with disabilities in the United States became the law 30 years ago. Religious institutions were exempt from that law. I mean, I, I've talked to the authors of the law, Senator Tom Harkin is a former senator from, from Iowa, uh, Tony Coelho, former congressman, majority leader uh, from California. And they said when they were crafting the legislation, they felt that they needed to exclude religious organizations in order to get passage of the legislation, which subsequently they've said that that has been a mistake. But what happened was churches, synagogues, mosques did not have to be accessible for people with disabilities. They, they did not have, have to have a ramp. They did not have to have um, accommodations for people with disabilities. But, you know, it, it's a very Jewish thing to include everyone, to be you know, a community for, for everyone, not to put stumbling blocks um, in front of the blind, not, you know, I, I think these are, you know, rooted in our Torah, in our tradition, and we just haven't been living up to our Jewish ideals. So I think that that's why inclusion was such an important part. But we decided to have a conference called the Advanced Conference. And this was a conference for Jewish funders who identified as supporting issues of disability inclusion. We gathered 100 funders from uh, you know, Israel, from the United States, Canada, other parts of the world. And afterwards, I had organized a dinner. And I'll never forget that dinner, there was a foundation that said, you know, they're, they're all identifying as Jewish foundations, but a foundation that, that you know, stood up at the dinner and said, listen, none of the organizations that we support are Jewish organizations. And that's how we practice our Jewish philanthropy. And then the person that's sitting next to them said, what are you talking about? We only support, you know, Orthodox Jewish organizations. How can you say you're a Jewish philanthropy? So I guess that's a very long-winded answer of saying, you can't define what Jewish philanthropy is. I think as long as you have some aspect of Judaism in your life and you're giving, I think you can say that you're engaged in Jewish philanthropy. And in fact, our philanthropy a lot of our philanthropy is not done in the Jewish community. In fact, most of our more prominent work is done in Hollywood. We've never abandoned, we've never walked away or tried to rebrand ourselves and say, we're not Jewish. We're very heavily identified as being part of the Jewish community. But I think that many people can say, listen, I don't give to anything specifically Jewishly, but I see what I do as benefiting uh, the Jewish people. and and 
engaged in Jewish philanthropy? Jewish philanthropy, in my view, is really rooted in our religion. It, it comes from a very, very basic rooted thing that we all learn, care for the other. We have to give for charity. Even a poor person has to give for charity. It's really rooted in our religion. It's interesting because for the inclusion, this philosophy gave us a hard time because when you base it on charity, the only way we could get people to give to disability or to inclusion is because they felt bad. It's like you have to help the poor people. You have to help the, those that cannot do the vulnerable. And we fought this for many, many, many years. We had to fight the root of what I said to you, that we're doing philanthropy because we believe in it. It's, you know, we are obligated to do philanthropy. Okay, but this is philanthropy in lenses of charity and chesed. This is a different level of philanthropy that has to be the base of everything we do. But beyond that, there is strategic philanthropy, which is not necessarily Jewish. So the value is, in my mind, Jewish. This is why we in our mission then say we are based on our Jewish values of giving responsibility, commitment, like it's very deep. But on the logic aspect of it, the planning, the strategy, the impact, the advocacy, this is beyond philanthropy or charitable action. I feel like what you're bringing out, and, and I hope that you hear this in the admiring way that I, that I mean it, which is that a lot of times when you ask somebody what, you know, what business they're in, and let's say they tell you they're in scrap metal or they make paper, it's not necessarily that they love scrap metal so much it, that it means something. They said, well, we saw a gap in the market and we decided to uh, work on scrap metal and we've made a lot of money doing it and, and it's allowed us to you know, live the life that we wanted to live. And so it's great. You know, um, do I think everybody in the world should get in the scrap metal business? No. You know, this is, we saw a need in the market. And I, I really appreciate how you talk about how you've chosen, at least as far as disability inclusion goes, the the area to work on, because you say, because we studied it and we looked at it and we said, we want to uh, use our, our money in, in a way that will promote our values in the world. And then when we look around and see where there's a need for that, it turns out that it's in the inclusion with people with disabilities. And a few years later, that turned out to have a connection with our family, but that's not why we chose it. And and then also maybe that goes into the question of strategic philanthropy. And then, okay, now that we've chosen this area to focus, how do we continue to use this analytical approach and say, now we've chosen this area, now how do we actually deploy our philanthropy in a way that is going to maximize the impact that we're trying to have? I'll tell you, one of the things that happens in philanthropy, which sort of is a pet peeve of mine, people will come you know, in the scrap metal business or the real estate business or whatever you might want to call it and say, oh, you're involved, you know, you, you run a foundation, what else do you do? And I always think like, you know, if I went to them and say, oh, you're involved in real estate, what else do you do with your time? You know, they'd look at me like I have three eyes and they'd be like, that's ridiculous. You know, I, I'm building a real estate empire or I'm building a scrap metal empire. But, but there's, a, there's this view of philanthropy like, oh, I've made some money and I can get involved in philanthropy. And generally those people fail at what they're doing because basically what they think is, oh, this is easy. I'll have some meetings and I'll decide who I'm going to give to. I'm going to write a big check. But 
I guess the difference is that we have been intimately involved in choosing the organizations that we're working with, bringing the issue to this organization and guiding them in how to be successful and impactful and engaging in advocacy at the same time to elevate the issue. I can't think of any other business where someone would just step in and say, oh, yeah, I'm a doctor now, or you know, I'm, I'm a real estate professional. No one would take you seriously, but philanthropy, one day you could switch and say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm doing philanthropy, and I'll, you are the most important philanthropist out there. You know, today we sit here and we're talking about disability inclusion, and it's so obvious to us that it's an important issue and disability is part of diversity. And we are in a very prominent time in our uh, society that diversity is so important. When we started 18 years, 18 years ago, people were laughing at us. People would tell us things like, this is not a sexy issue. Why are you getting into it? People would say to us, you know, we fund everything but disability or inclusion. And I would look at them and say, how can you fund in the healthcare without to think you are funding people with disability? How can you fund in education, in employment, and choose all the issues that probably come into your mind? Everything is connected to people with disability. Housing, employment, higher education, Jewish camping, um, you know, banking services, name it. And we took an issue that people never wanted to look at that, that it's relevant to them. And by convincing them and developing tools, questions, data, um, pilots, we made them understand that they all connected. And the reason I'm saying it now, it's because the art of philanthropy is working together. And this is, I think, one of the most beautiful things that philanthropy can teach us is actually how to build this net of networks in order to be more impactful and meaningful. So you didn't say this on the air for listeners to hear yet, but I loved something you said to Dan and I earlier, which was um, you were talking about how this inclusion work that you do, disability inclusion work, you do it in a huge variety of contexts. So you've talked a little bit about in Hollywood, so like not even just in Jewish institutions, but more broadly. Um, but even within the Jewish institutional world, you've done work with the reform movement and with Chabad and with the conservative movement and with Hillel International and all sorts of groups. And there's a ton of differences in what inclusion work even means in those different contexts. And I'm very interested in to some extent, the nitty gritty of those differences. I think that um, I would love for listeners listening to this who are connected to any of those kinds of organizations to be able to walk away and say, oh, these are like some practical considerations that we should be thinking about in our settings. And I know we could we could fill many hours just in this question, so it's maybe a little overwhelming. But to the extent you can identify just some specific kinds of things that people might not have considered that make a big difference for somebody who has a physical disability. Like, I'm thinking about my own experience because, look, I'll be the first to say I fall short on this frequently. I, um, I don't always consider in my own offerings to the world the experience of those who have access needs that are different than my own. I don't always think about that. And I was watching an episode of Queer Eye, of all things, and they did this beautiful episode with a man who was in a wheelchair. And I was deeply touched and kind of startled at myself because they, they went to the grocery store to get some food. 
And they were in the aisle of one of the grocery stores. And he said, oh, well, all my shopping at the grocery store, I always just get stuff on the bottom half of the shelf. Like my entire house, all my food, all my everything is from the bottom half of the shelf because I can't reach the top half of the shelf. And I and like for me, that was a moment of like, I never considered that. I should have considered that. I would I would love to inhabit a world where grocery stores thought about that. But it's not about necessarily self-flagellating or saying like, oh, the grocery store in that guy's neighborhood is doing a terrible job. It's more, what are some of those little kinds of things that could make the difference in somebody's life between having the same food in their house all the time that they're literally able to reach versus being able to access the same kinds of things that the rest of us are at the grocery store. So that, but like Jewish camps or um, Hillel's. I'm curious how you'd, how you'd start to approach that for us. So I'll step backwards and just say that there is a theory of change, okay? That in some point we had to develop internally a theory of change so our efforts will complement each other. And just try to imagine someone's life cycle. Right. You say, you know, when you are a baby, when you're a toddler, when you are a teenager, when you're adult, it's not all the same. So every even in the Jewish world, every station you stop address one age. Okay, you go to camp, it's a teenager. You go to synagogue, it's mainly um, in the Jewish community, many times around the family experience. If you go to work, it's young adults. So we had to, first of all, make connection between all of these stations, you know, in someone's life. And we call it like, you know, the holistic approach, because it's not that your life end in kindergarten when you're a person with disability. It continues like everyone else. And why is it important? Because then when you go and work with different organizations, first of all, you have to make them aware of each other. You have to make them aware that they need to collaborate. So someone's life are not stopping when they get to the age of 21, which most people with disabilities stop getting support. They actually continue for a long time after. Okay. If you work with Hillel, this is a student organization their mindset is for young adults. So you cannot be too pushy. The students will, you know, not engage. You cannot force too much because they are busy. They're students. You can, so you have to come up with like, okay, what students will feel connected? Social justice, trainings, uh, a lot of things that, you know, students like to be part of these programs because they can count them into their credits, but in the same time, it makes them feel good. They really mean it. They want to grow professionally. There are many reasons. So you get into the mindset of what does it mean to work with an organization catered to students? Another example is um, we worked with a different Jewish movement. So the reform movement is more of a DNA of social justice, diversity. This is the in-being of the organization. So we did not need to spend a lot of time justifying and educating the social justice component of doing it right. But in the Orthodox world, the social justice language does not really fit within the needs of the practice. It's more actually rooted in the charity and the chesed and how we do good. And we have to twist it to say, oh, what is missing in the Orthodox world for them to understand? Actually, there is a problem here. And one of the things we found out that we actually do not have enough halachically approach um, issues around people with disabilities. So once you don't have halacha 
which is referring to how to behave in a certain situation. This is the rule. They, you don't pay attention to it. So we had to go to an organization that deals with just rabbinical, um, the chief rabbi in Israel and all the rabbis under and say, come sit, let's raise all the questions and you have to answer them halachically. So you can tell your people that this is actually not a charity act to give a child with a disability the, re- the authority to come and be bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. It's actually their right. But you have to get into the mindset of who you want to change, who's your target audience, who the organization you're going to work with. They are not the same at all. I'll give one more example to say that Chabad, for example, is very rooted in the Rebbe philosophy, right? The Rebbe is Menachem Mendel Schneerson. And it was actually Jay's idea that said, let's create a book that based on his philosophy and belief and a mindset around people with disability. So when all the emissaries that are being trained will look at this issue of diversity, disability, inclusion as part of their DNA. It's not like a force. And it took a year of you know work to invest to write this book, but this is the Rebbe philosophy on inclusion. This is one example to tell you that art of strategic philanthropy is really to think how you get to your end goal. If other philanthropists with other priorities, you know, that we're emphasizing not disability inclusion, but whatever other Jewish education, uh, you know, whatever that might be that this or that uh, foundation might want to advance on the one hand. And on the other hand, I'm thinking about how so much of what you're talking about is relevant, not to philanthropists, but to just any organization that has a mission and that's trying to uh, move a, a heavy, a heavy mission forward but that doesn't necessarily have the resources, the, the, the financial resources that a philanthropy would have. I guess I'm asking in both of those two cases, are, when you look around at the Jewish community and how both philanthropists and organizations are operating, are there things that you think that they can, that they can learn from the way that you've done things? Are, are, there, are there ways in which you look around and you see, like, I, I, I wish that other philanthropies were taking this approach in other areas? I mean, listen, foundations are set up because the United States government allows families to put money aside for the benefit of the public, and they can then decide how, within certain restrictions, it is distributed and how much is distributed, you know, when. So basically, I would be an advocate since I've been doing this for family foundations, and I think they've had a huge impact on American life and, and the life you know, around the world. I think it can be hugely fulfilling. I would say when when I shift to Jewish organizations and the historical nature of Jewish organizations, and I've written about this, and I'm I'm somewhat of a contrarian, but I think we live in a changing Jewish world. I think there are elements of our Jewish community that are not represented in the Jewish organizational world or not represented in leadership. Jews of color, Jews with disabilities, uh, Russian-American Jews, Israel-American Jews. And the bizarre thing is that when you look at, at some major Jewish organizations, it's not only the same type of person, white, 
Ashkenazi male middle aged that's taking over the either the, the the professional or the lay position. It's often the same person that moves from the Federation world to the Jewish agency world to uh, the Anti-Defamation League. And, you know, we have a very educated, uh, successful Jewish community with many different people from many different walks of life. And what I've always said to the Jewish, and, and I've written about this, is that if you do not become diverse, if you do not represent the diversity in the Jewish community, you will turn off most of the Jewish community and you will become irrelevant. That's been my plea to the Jewish community. And that's my, that, 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 that's my two cents in terms of the organizational Jewish community. Yeah, I mean, I just want to reinforce that, like that that where you went, Jay, I really appreciate because in a way that's what was on my mind as as I was thinking about just listening to you and like reflecting it through the lens of our own mission, which by analogy to me has has a little something to do with uh, an analogy to people with disabilities. In other words, what I'm what I'm talking about is that our mission is very much to recognize all of these Jews that have not been part of the mainstream of the Jewish community, some of which you mentioned, LGBTQ Jews, Jews of color, et cetera, uh, but also people that are just like, you know, they don't believe the same way or they had a, a different uh, approach to being Jewish in their family or whatever it might be. And that the question for us is always is strategically, right? How can we push the Jewish world in a way that that opens it up to all of those different kinds of people? And so, you know, we're a basically tiny organization and not a philanthropy and we don't have, you know, we don't have the carrot of of philanthropy to use to try to prod and push and pull the Jewish world. And, we, you know, we have potentially other tools like a podcast, but but it's all very, very, it's all very generative for me to, to think about that analogy. So I, I, I don't really have a question here unless you want to, uh, unless you want to say something, but like that's that's where my head is at as you've been talking. I would just say as a student of politics, if you represent a sizable part of the, the population, the rest of the community will pay attention to you. Sometimes our organizational world or our government may be behind, but eventually they'll catch up to society. Speaking truth to power has always worked. You know, they can ignore you for a little while, but as your numbers grow, they can't ignore you forever. You know, I'm sure that I'm not completely well liked in all uh, sectors of of the Jewish philanthropic world because I've also written about the obligation of you know billionaires to be transparent, to be open, to be interactive with the Jewish world. I mean, this this world where you know I'm wealthy and I'm going to hide behind an organization and I'm going to try to do good things, but I really don't want to have any interaction, you know, with the general Jewish public. I don't think works anymore. We are not a representative community right now in terms of our leadership. And either organizations such as yours will rise and become more representative or the traditional organizations will catch on and say, we have to you know, become more representative. I had a really meaningful interaction with actually my my speech coach a few years ago. I was working on my Eli talk. I gave this, you know, Eli talk, which, you know, this project that for a while featured all sorts of different people across the Jewish world talking about Jewish big picture ideas. And I was working on my Eli talk and they give us like a, a coach 
And I was doing my spiel about like the value of the digital Jewish world of digital Judaism. And at one point early on, Bonnie said to me, Bonnie, my speech coach said to me, um, Bonnie, if you're listening, you were a great coach, but it was blunt and direct. Lex, you're talking like a privileged white guy. You're talking and you're saying all the reasons that digital Judaism is so great are that it's sort of shiny and new and invigorating. Give me the people who need this. Talk to me about people who actually cannot, not that they sort of don't want to, but they, they actually cannot access Jewish institutions that are offline and they need digital Jewish spaces. And I bring that up because here we are now under COVID, we've got digital Jewish spaces. It's not that anybody particularly listened to me, but by default, we now have these spaces. And what I have been working on throughout this COVID era is pushing myself to talk about how this is such a good move because there are people who literally can't get in a car and go down the street to Jewish institutions for whom the beginning of COVID, not that anybody wanted it, not that it's good, but for whom the beginning of COVID was a marked increase in their ability to access Jewish anything. Because all sorts of institutions who were doing programming that required in-person attendance, they, they now moved it digitally. So I've been pushing myself on that front, but I'm curious whether you've observed positive shifts on this front and what you would sort of call on us to do to maybe accelerate those positive shifts. Because I, at the very least, I'm encouraged that in the realm of physical disabilities, we've created a lot of opportunities that are more accessible. But I also can point to ourselves and say, look, we have work that we could do to improve our own access for folks who are, I mean, we're a podcast for, for folks who can't hear. Um, we try to do some things. We've had some transcripts, but we haven't yet had transcripts for all of our episodes. We certainly want to do that. Um, what would you say to us in this moment of COVID where we could maybe think about it as, oh, like this is a bummer temporary moment that's going to eventually end and we'll be able to go back to the way things were. How could we push ourselves to not think of it that way, but actually, oh, we have some new lessons for how we can do more inclusive programming. Let's apply them forever. <laughs> things will not go back to exactly the way they were. God willing, there will be a vaccine and most people get vaccinated and uh, it'll save lives um, and sicknesses. But one of the things, I mean, I, I think this era of COVID, first of all, it's allowed people who were not able to access Jewish life to be able to access Jewish life. On top of that, in terms of like mental health, there are people who are comfortable, like Shira, going into and being in crowds and talking for hours and socializing. And then there are other people, you know, probably like me, they've been like, I, I don't want to go to another event. You know, I'm happy to do it on Zoom or, you know, whatever. So I think COVID has hit everyone a little bit differently. You know, you're probably going to have some hybrid where, you know, when it's safe, events will start to happen. But there'll be an aspect of like, okay, you don't want to join in person. There's ability to join, you know, virtually. You know, we're going to see COVID has changed our world. And I think that we'll, there'll be lasting implications. I think that, you know, just from the disability community, I know that there are people that, that 
you know, this has been a benefit from uh, in terms of participation, but also, you know, a, a lot of people in the disability community were ostracized and lonely and not part of our Jewish community at all and not even thought of as equal parts of, of, of the community. So it's probably been a benefit, you know, in many ways. Jewish life will adapt. You know, I'm hopeful that we'll have a different but maybe stronger Jewish community coming out of this. It's hard in time of crisis to see it as an opportunity that uh, good things come out of it. But every crisis leads to many good things. And one of the good things is that, you know, we used to think about technology as a barrier when it came to communal life. It's just for young people. Older cannot be on uh, on technology, or uh, this is the price of being remote, or many, many things that we used to think. Suddenly, with COVID, we don't think anymore. Look at that. It's amazing. We can have a whole leadership course online uh, by Zoom or in different platforms. We can have galas. We can have meaning that this gave us a push to find solutions to people, geographical areas, to ages, to uh, timing that we were not open before. You know, when we used to have uh, a lot of interviews, studios will say, if you're not coming in person, the interview cannot be conducted. Look at today. No one comes in person and they can speak to you. You can sit in a basement in Alaska. They don't care as long as we can connect. Number two, I think that, you know, it is very challenging at times to be just on technology or on the platforms. And there is a need to the hybrid model, but there are opportunities to create intimacy, even on Zoom, if it's being well done. Even our conversations, like you don't have to, as long as it's in small groups, as long as you know what is the goal, as long as you have someone moderating technology can be used in a way that would allow us to engage and do better job if we know how to use it. It's not technology is the solution. Technology is the tool for us to be able to do better work that we before that did not think of. And one more thing about technology, I think that if you're forced to use it or if you're being educated how to use it, you're not afraid of using it. And I think this is one of, you know, we have four kids. Do I know technology as they know? Believe me, even if I wanted to claim I know because I have young kids, no way. But in the same time, if you spend a few, time, a few moments with me and you tell me this is how it's going to be done, this is how you're going to do it, let's install it in your computer, the fear is being removed, meaning the barrier. And in the world of inclusion and disability and, and other social issues, it is all about the barriers. Can we move the barriers by finding solutions, by making it accessible to people? And accessibility is not just for people with disability, are for younger kids, for older, for different minority groups, meaning that if we want and we're creative, we can make it happen. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation and uh, we'll definitely be taking so much that came up today and bringing it up in future conversations. So thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. And I wish you guys uh, much success. I think it's a needed voice out there in, in our Jewish community. 
Well, we appreciate that. Thank you. And we appreciate all of you who are out there listening as well. Thank you for tuning into this episode, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can follow all of our different social media accounts on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. They're all Judaism Unbound. Uh, so just look for us on all those different applications. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And you can always email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make, especially this tail end of the solar year. We love it when you're able to support us financially and you can give us a gift either on a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via judaismunbound.com donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.